You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we are going to uh, be looking at the topic of the will of God, uh, trying to discover things about the will of God. I think that perhaps our most common prayer would fit into that category, where we're, we're facing something in life, we have more than one um, option in front of us, and we're trying to determine what is it that God would have us to do. We're praying for God to give us wisdom or to give us direction, show us how to do what he's asking us to do. And our text this morning is going to directly address that subject. Take a look with me. First, First Thessalonians 4 at verse 3, Paul writes, for this is the will of God. Would you read that out loud with me? For this is the will of God. So Paul's going to address a subject that I think is so important to us. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are looking to you. We're asking that you would speak to us this morning. Uh, We're thankful, Jesus, that you said your sheep would hear your voice. In other words, you speak to us. And so we pray that your word would come alive in our hearts and minds. And then, Lord, we pray that you would use it to address the very things that we're facing in life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, to talk about the will of God this morning, what we're going to do is spend some time dealing with what we might call the theology of God's will. Or, or sort of building a foundation of, of things, uh, principles that we need to understand as it relates to God's will. And then we'll talk a little bit about discerning the will of God specifically in the circumstances that we're facing. So here's our first premise this morning. That is that God has a will for your life. God has a will for your life. You are not a flat character in someone else's drama. Another way of of visualizing that is you are not an extra sipping coffee at a table in someone else's action film. Did you understand? If you you watch a movie and, and you look in the background, and you see these, these characters, they, they're, they're, they're doing something, but they're doing something in the background. It's not their story. It doesn't really matter. You ever wonder what they're talking about in the background? <laughs> you see, t- t- you know, they're not part of the story, and there's two people talking. They're probably talking about, man, I wish I had a bigger part in this movie. But there's just that awkward thing. Listen, you're the, the, you are not an extra in somebody else's story. Your life matters. God has a plan for your life. You, you need to embrace that. You matter. You matter to your family. You matter to our community. You matter to the church of Jesus Christ. You matter to the kingdom of God. 
the decisions that you make in your private life, the decisions that you make in your family life, the decisions you make in your church life matter to the kingdom of God. Listen to what David said. This is in Psalm 139. He says, God, you formed my inward parts. Lord, you, you shaped me. He talks about in the womb. And in the next verse, he says this, I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That English phrase, wonderfully made, comes from a Hebrew term that carries the idea of being unique and marvelous. In other words, David is recognizing that he is not a product of an assembly line. It's not as though God is doing something in the world. He's got a few major players and the rest of us just fill the seats. You know, because it's, it's awkward if the stands are empty when the stars are playing. And so we are not just created to fill the seats. He's saying, I have been uniquely and marvelously crafted by God. And we need to understand that about ourselves. Allow me to use a negative example to teach a positive lesson. The storyline of the book of Joshua is the children of Israel collectively embracing the promises that God had given to them. God had promised centuries before to give to Abraham's descendants a land. And the story of Joshua is them crossing the Jordan and them um, participating or receiving that which God had promised. And so there's these storylines that unfold as they partake of that which God had promised them, as they dwell in the land. And one of the storylines is about an individual. His name is Achan. And what happens is the children of Israel were told to take the city of Jericho. They were told that all of the spoils of war were to be dedicated to God. And yet this individual Achan, he went in he saw a garment, he saw some gold, and he took it, and he took it for himself, and he went home and he buried it in his tent. And we're told the next scene that unfolds is the, is the people collectively go against this, the town of Ai, and they're defeated. They lose the battle. People die. Families mourn the loss of a father, a brother, a son. And the morale of the nation is broken. Even Joshua himself is questioning God. What, Lord, you, you sent us in this land. You, you told us to take the land. And Lord, we've lost people. People have died. And the reason for the failure was one man who failed to embrace the fact that his life mattered and the will of God for his life mattered. Do, do you understand how important that is? The, if we're going to understand the will of God, we need to understand that we matter to God and that God has a purpose for our life. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. This is Ephesians 2 at verse 10. So we, ca we can't say, well, that was just true of Israel. This is written to the church of Jesus Christ. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared when? beforehand for us to walk in. In other words, God has already a predetermined plan for our life, 
Our life matters and God wants us to walk within his purposes. There are a handful of different examples in scripture where God actually intervenes and tells a couple about the plan he has for their child's life even before the child is born. One of those cases is the story of Samson. And, and Samson's parents are, are told how careful they need to be in the raising of their son because God has a plan for Samson's life. Samson will begin to deliver Israel out from under the bondage of the Philistines. Now, it's unlikely that your parents had a visitation from an angelic being before you were born. That probably didn't happen. However, your life matters no less. God has a plan for us. And, and, and so the writers of scripture, they actually encourage us to discover the plan of God for our lives. Listen to what Peter wrote. This is 2 Peter 1 at verse 10. He says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and your election sure. In other words, you need to learn the purposes, the plan, the will of God for your life. So the first premise, if, if we're gonna understand the particulars of God, what God wants us to do, we need to embrace the fact that we matter. We need to embrace the fact that God has a purpose for us. We need to embrace the fact that, that it's, it's not as though God is concerned with everybody else's story and God isn't concerned with yours. Your life matters. The second thing, the second premise is that God's will is better than our will. God's will is better than our will. The reality is there are times in life where what I want to do and what God wants me to do collide, right? There are times. Each of us can uh, reference times, you might be even in one right now, where you know what God wants you to do, you just don't necessarily wanna do it. There's a collision between what God wants for you and what you want for you. And what we need to embrace is the reality that God's will is better than our will. This idea of wills colliding is perhaps nowhere more vividly illustrated than in the life of Jesus himself. Jesus told us, he said that the Son of Man came not to do his own will. He came to do the will of the Father. In fact, on one occasion, the disciples looked at Jesus and, and they marveled how without eating and without resting, he seemed to be so invigorated. And Jesus commented, he said, I have food that you know not of. My food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. In other words, Jesus would say, what invigorates me, what refreshes me, what drives me, what energizes me, is doing what pleases God. That's what Jesus lived for. And yet, one of the most vivid scenes in the life of Jesus, we find him in a garden. We find him bearing this, the intense weight of physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering. And we find him in the dirt, crying out to the Father. It's in Luke chapter 22. And Jesus prays these words, Father, 
if it is your will, take this cup from me. A cup would be a reference to the cross he would be about to endure. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what? My will, but yours be done. There's a conflict here, even in the Son of God, with his will and the will of the Father. Now, it's understandable why Jesus did not want to drink of the cup of the cross. As a human being, Jesus knew the pain that would be associated with the cross. He knew that that the cross would mean a Roman flagrum. He knew that the cross would mean nails in his hands and feet. He knew that the cross meant that his body would be out, exposed to the elements for hours as he slowly passed. And the reality is God created us to recoil from pain, to to avoid pain. We're good at it. We we don't like pain. We'll avoid it. We even avoid pain that leads to positive things, right? We, we look, by the way, just, this is just free information, but you're all in shape. You're all in shape. You're not necessarily in the shape that you want to be, but that's a shape, <laughs> right? And, and, and sometimes like, what? I, the sh- I'm in the shape I am. This is the shape I wish I would be. And what's standing between? Pain. <laughs> I don't want to I don't I don't want to suffer the cardio. I don't want to suffer the lifting and I certainly don't want to suffer the self-denial of not eating that. Right? We avoid pain. Jesus is understandable. But listen, the physical pain that Jesus knew as a human he would have to endure was nothing compared to the spiritual suffering that he would endure on the cross. Jesus, when he went to the cross, would take the penalty for our sin. The judgment of God would fall upon him so it wouldn't have to fall upon us. You know, there's a sign that God has given related to judgment. It's the rainbow, right? The rainbow, it's a a reminder, something about judgment. God says, I will not judge the world that way again because God has a different form of judgment. That judgment is the cross where Jesus would take the sin of humanity upon himself so his righteousness could be given to you and I. And Jesus is there, he's in the garden, he's wrestling with the reality of the physical pain of the cross and the spiritual pain of the cross. And he says, my will is that you would take this cut from me. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, God, but your will. We face that same conflict in life where we have times where, where the, the, the will of God is, collides with our own will. We need to remember God's will is better than our will. Listen to what Isaiah has to say. Isaiah 55, God speaking, he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. You ever encountered where you think differently than God? God recognizes it. He says, my thoughts and your thoughts are not the same. And then he says, nor are my ways or your ways my ways. There's a difference. Your thinking and your doing are different than my thinking and doing. So listen to what God says. He says, for 
as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts? The answer is yes. The question is, does God think his thoughts and ways are better than yours? What's the answer? Yes. yes. Now, does he think they're only a little better? <laughs> does God think, I, you know, I think my way is just a little better than yours. How does he illustrate it? My thoughts are so much better than yours. They're higher than the heavens are above the earth. My ways are so much better than your ways. They're higher than the heavens are above the earth. You know, the, the, the closest star to our planet is the sun. It's 93 million miles above us. 93 million miles. Now, generally speaking, and there's some variation and I don't understand it, and if you do, keep it to yourself. But basically, the speed limit of the universe is 671 million miles an hour. That's the speed of light. So traveling at the speed limit of the universe, to get to the sun from here, it would take you roughly eight and a half minutes. That means if something happened on the sun, it would be eight and a half minutes before we would see it happen, traveling at 671 million miles an hour. The next closest star sits in the Alpha Centurion system, roughly four and a half million, no, sorry, no, roughly four and a half light years away from us. In other words, 671 million miles an hour, it would take you almost four and a half years to get there. Are God's ways better than our ways? He thinks they are. They're much better than our ways. And so the reality is, is that when we come to those times where they conflict, we need to realize, God, your ways are better than our ways. Now, that being said, our third premise is this. We'll never discover the will of God if we're not willing to do the will of God. So you're facing a particular scenario. You, I'm not sure if I should choose behind door number one or if I should choose behind door number two, God, I need you to illuminate me. I need you to help me with this. We will never know the particulars of God's will if we aren't willing to do God's will. There's a character in scripture who his, his storyline is a lesson on disobedience. His name is King Saul. And King Saul's life is marked by disobedience. He's, he's not an individual who didn't know what God wanted him to do. He's not a confused individual. He knows exactly what God wants him to do. He's just unwilling to do it in every scene of his life. He disobeys God. And then he finds himself, towards the end of his life, he finds himself in a situation where he needs the particulars. What has happened is the Philistines have joined forces and they've marched against Israel, they're attempting to take the trade route to control what comes in and out of what they called Canaan. And, and Saul looks at his military handbook and he's got no answers for the way in which they formulated their armies. So he goes to prayer and he hears nothing. And he goes to the priest and he hears nothing. And he goes to the prophets 
and he hears nothing. And the reason Saul hears nothing from the Lord is because Saul wasn't willing to do what God wanted. <laughs> Why should God give you any more information? Saul, you're not doing the things that he already told you to do. There's another scene that takes place later. The, the, the nation of Babylon has marched on Judah. They've taken captive the city, and they've taken a number of the people as POWs back to Babylon. But there's still a large group of people living in the land, and they're confused as to what to do. And so they come to uh, Jeremiah the prophet, and they ask Jeremiah, they say, Jeremiah, will you pray for us? Seek God. We want to know God's will for our life. We want to know what God wants us to do. And in Jeremiah chapter 42 at verse 6, they make this statement. They say, whether it is pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God. So Jeremiah, you go seek the Lord and whatever God tells us to do, we'll do it. Whether good or bad, whether pleasing or displeasing. That sounds noble, doesn't it? I was actually at a men's conference one time. Somebody quoted that verse. Whatever you say, God, we'll do it, whether it's pleasing or displeasing. And I thought, you need to keep reading, bro. Because here's what happens. Jeremiah goes off to pray. He spends 10 days praying. How long? 10 days. So this isn't like, this isn't like an instant response. This isn't, we take our prayer, we put it in the microwave, we shut the door. We don't have time to push all those numbers, so we just push popcorn. This is not one of those immediate kind of a thing. 10 days, they, he seeks the Lord. And after 10 days, they come back and the leadership gathers around him. And Jeremiah tells them what to do. Here's what he says. He says, you need to stay here and you need to submit to the Babylonians, and God's gonna care for you. He says, but if you flee, and you try to join forces with Egypt, and you try to overthrow Babylon, he says, you're gonna be defeated. You're gonna die. And so listen to the response. It's chapter 43, verse two. It gives a list of the names of the leaders. You don't wanna be in that list. And then it says, they spoke to Jeremiah, you speak falsely, the Lord didn't say that. Let me put it to you in the King Jimmy version. They come and they say, Jeremiah, whatever God tells you, we'll do it. And then they say, God didn't tell you that. I'll do whatever you want, God, but I'm not doing that. Here's the problem. They, would, they were not going to get any more detail on what God wanted them to do if they weren't willing to do what God wanted them to do. If we want to know the will of God, we've got to be willing to do the will of God. Here's our fourth premise. God's will has a purpose. So listen, if you want to know God's will for your life, embrace the truth that your life matters to God. He has a purpose for you. Embrace the truth that his purposes, his plans are better than your plans. Be willing to do what he wants you to do. And then recognize this. God's will has a purpose. Let's look again at our text. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your what? Let's try it one more time, so see if we get to six people. 
For this is the will of God. Your what? Sanctification. Let's read that whole part of the verse together. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's plan for your life is sanctification. So it becomes the responsibility of the reader to understand what sanctification is. That's a Bible word, isn't it? It's, it's probably, if you look at your text stream for the last week, do a word search through it, you probably won't find the word sanctification unless you're quoting the Bible. It's a Bible word. So what is this? The word sanctification is a derivative of the New Testament word for holy. What is God's will for your life? Holiness. One of the character traits of God is that he's holy. He's a holy God. And God is developing a holy people. And so the will of God for your life, whatever circumstances you're facing right now, God's purposes in your life is holiness. Now, the idea of this holiness or this sanctification can be looked at in three ways. Number one, holiness is something that is gifted to you when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's granted to you. The Bible uses the word imputed. It's placed upon you. There are a lot of different metaphors that are used to help illustrate the condition of a person apart from Christ and what happens to a person when they put faith in Christ. One of those metaphors is a person apart from Christ is described as wearing filthy garments. Those filthy garments are the sinful actions of that individual and the failed attempts of self-righteousness to deal with those sinful acts. So I've done something that violates the law of God and I try to, I try to undo it by certain behaviors or certain actions. And the Bible describes that as filthy rags. They're unfit garments. But then the Bible also describes the person who has come to Christ as being clothed in robes of righteousness. In fact, Jesus told a story. It's in Matthew 22. He told the story about a king, God, who had a feast, heaven, invited people to come, you and I, and when they came, they were all given brand new garments that made them fit for entrance into the feast. We are granted righteousness, holiness, when we put faith in Jesus Christ. Let's look at our verse again, verse three. This is the will of God, your what? Sanctification. So what is God's will? God's will is that you would be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and be given free entrance to the kingdom of heaven. God does not want you to live one more moment apart from him. If you have yet to make the decision for Jesus Christ, you're still wrestling with it. You're on the outskirts looking in. The will of God for your life is for you to embrace Christ and be clothed in his righteousness. In the same way, perhaps you're, you're backslidden. Perhaps you've brought things into your life that have drawn you away from the Lord. 
It's the will of God for you not to live one more moment separated from him. That's God's will, your sanctification, your holiness. This word, sanctification, this idea of holiness, not only is it the holiness that's imputed to us, but it's also the holiness that's developed within us. It's that idea that, again, a lot of different biblical metaphors used to illustrate it, but it's the idea of us growing in relationship with Jesus. Do you know the Bible compares you to a tree? You're like a tree. And when you're planted by the rivers of water, the source of life, abiding in Christ, then you're a tree that begins to flourish and begins to bear fruit. And those fruit, the fruit that you bear is described as things like love and joy and peace and self-control and kindness. These, these character traits are developed in you. What is that? Well, it's sanctification. It's holiness. The Bible also compares you to a building. And you are being built up. This building is being erected to become the habitation of, of God, the presence and the holiness of God. The Bible also compares you to a lump, but we'll talk about that another time. So, but there's these comparisons. It's, it's the idea of sanctification. We're developing, we're becoming the people that God intends for us to, to become. The third aspect of sanctification is the idea of us being devoted to God. We commit ourselves to him. The most common way sanctification is illustrated in the Old Testament is when utensils are devoted for the service of God. They have no other service. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting that the, the fall of Babylon, remember the story when Babylon falls, it's in Daniel chapter five, the handwriting on the wall. Remember that story? Raise your hand if you remember the story. Okay, the handwriting on the wall. Listen, here's what, here's the, the final straw, proverbial straw that broke the back of Babylon. King Belshazzar took utensils that had been devoted to God and used those utensils in a profane manner. <laughs> Does God take devotion to himself serious? The whole nation fell because of it. It was the final collapse of an empire. God wants us to devote ourselves to him. I think it would be fair to say that Paul the apostle accomplished the purposes of God for his life. He tells us this, this is 2 Timothy chapter four. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have done what? Finished the race. Paul's at the end. He knows his, his life has come to an end. He'd been in prison before and he'd been released from prison, but this time he knew this is it. It's in a place called the Mamertine Prison, just above the Forum of Rome. And it won't be long before, before a, soldier, a soldier will go into that prison, will bring Paul out, he'll stand before the bima, the, the judgment there in the city of Rome, and he'll be declared guilty and he'll be executed. He's come to the end of his life. Listen to what he says. I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And then he says, and not me only, 
but all those who love his appearing. He's saying, I've come to the end of my race. I've accomplished the purposes for which God placed me here. We could say, Paul embraced the fact that his life mattered. He embraced the fact that God had a plan for his life. He was willing to, to do the will of God. He was willing to embrace the fact that God's will was better than his own will, and he walked in that. But the reason that he was able to finish his life well is because he had devoted himself to the Lord. Listen to the first words that Paul makes, the first declaration that he makes as a follower of Jesus. It's in Acts chapter 9. Luke records it. And Luke says that, that Paul was trembling and astonished at seeing Jesus. And then he says this, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's sanctification. Hey, you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to you. And he's producing righteousness in you as you follow him. But you, sanctification, is you devoting yourself to God and saying, God, here's my life. I give it to you. What do you want out of my life? You see, you see the will of God has a, has a purpose. Its purpose is sanctification. Now, Paul does something very interesting here. Verse 3, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he says this. He says, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentile or the world at large, who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as he forewarned you and testified. It's interesting, he talks about this general concept of sanctification, and then Paul addresses one particular area of struggle for the Thessalonians. He says, this is the will of God for your life, sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You see, it was a common struggle in ancient Greece, sexual immorality, and it's a common struggle in our world today. And so he says, God's plan for your life is so much bigger than that. I think it's such a tragedy that in our culture today, we have reduced the human experience to something as base as our sexual identity and preference. It's tragic. Your life is so much bigger than that. God's plan for you is so much bigger than that. And so he says you need to abstain from sexual immorality. The draw of the world to, to identify yourself or to engage in sexual practices like the rest of the world, he says you need to abstain from that. You need to hold back from that. Abstain's a strong word. It means to stop. It means to resist. It means to fight against. You know, Thessalonica sits in northern Greece, an area called Macedonia. 
and, and Greek culture had existed for hundreds of years before the time of the New Testament being written and had spread throughout much of the world. And the Greeks were masterful storytellers. And they told stories for at least three reasons. One, entertainment. Two, to explain the unexplainable. And three, and perhaps most importantly, was to instill values into the people. And so, so what, what were the important values of Hellenism or of Greek thinking? And they would be instilled into the people through these stories. And so they would tell stories of these individuals they, who, who went on, on uh, heroic adventures. One of the most well-known was the story of Odysseus and his odyssey and his story from, from after, the, after the Trojan War comes to an end and he's got to make the journey back home and it takes him 10 years to get back because of the, the, the difficulties, the challenges that he faces along the way. Quick pause, not a true story, okay? It's made up, but it's made up in order to teach lessons to the generation. And one of the challenges that Odysseus faces is he and his crew have to sail past an island that was inhabited by a, a group of women known as the Sirenes. And these women were seductive and they would allure men with their singing to their own peril, to their own death. Now the story was not written to warn people against sailing in that part of the land or the danger of reefs. The story was written to warn of the danger of seduction. And so the, the story is told of Odysseus, and as he's sailing past there, he knows it's coming, and so he has the whole crew take wax and shove it in their ears so they won't be able to hear the singing of the seductus sirens. And then he has them tie him to a mast. And so they sail by and he, he wants to break free. He wants to turn. He wants to head towards them. But the ropes tie him to the mast. And the lesson that they were trying to instill was the danger of seduction. Well, there's another story. It's the story of Jason and the Agronauts. And Jason has to sail by the same area. But Jason doesn't use wax and ears and he doesn't tie himself to a mast. Instead, as they start to sail by and the music begins to play by the sirens, another character on the ship takes out a lyre and begins to play. And the music that he plays is so much more beautiful that the, peop the, the crew turn away from the island and sail past. The lesson is, hey, there's the danger of seduction, but listen, the lesson is, there are things even more beautiful than that. Do you know the plans that God has for us is so much better? The life that God intends for us, Jesus described it as abundant life. He described it as a life where it's like we are, we are, we are actually connected to a fountain where living water flows through us. Sanctification 
is when we come to realize that the world and what the world promises us is not where we're going to find life, but we find life in relationship with Jesus Christ. We abstain successfully when we realize his life and his way is better. Now that said, this is the last point. The last point is how do we discover the will of God? So those are all premise points. Your life matters. God has a plan for your life. His way is better than your way. His way has a purpose, and his purpose is to make us holy so we can experience the life he intends for us. But listen, how do I determine in the particulars? How do I know if I should go out door number one or door number two? How should I know, how do I know if I should make the right turn or the left turn? How should I know if I should take this offer or reject it? How do we determine the will of God? I want to walk through a couple verses. The first verse is Colossians 2 at verse 3. It says this, in him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Listen carefully. There is a test. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where can we find wisdom? In Jesus. It's in him. Listen to what James said. This is James chapter one. James said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let me rephrase that. If you don't know what to do, if in any situation you're facing, you don't know what to do. That's what James is addressing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men liberally without reproach. In other words, there is wisdom in Christ and God invites us to access that wisdom. You're actually invited to it. Third verse is in Deuteronomy chapter four. And in Deuteronomy chapter four, God says this. He says, this, my word, this is your wisdom. So the wisdom is in Christ. We can access Christ through prayer and then God will speak to us from his word. In Proverbs chapter 11, we're told this. Where there is no counsel, my people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In other words, sometimes the wisdom that is hidden in Christ, that we, that we seek through prayer, that is provided for us in his word, is given to us through the counsel of others. So we, had, we, we look for, for those who would give us wise and godly counsel. The last verse I want to share is this. In the book of Proverbs, it's repeated, and it's also in the book of Psalms, we are told, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom will always take its first step towards pleasing God. That's where wisdom is. That's where you're going to find it. You're in a situation you know what to do. First step is towards pleasing God. How many of you have heard the, the, the phrase, I think, it's, I think it's credited to Confucius, that the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. I'm not sure that's right. Here's what I mean. I took my first step 
But if the journey's that way, I just made the journey longer than a thousand miles, right? You can actually get farther away from your destination by taking the step in the wrong direction. That makes sense? Like you're going the wrong way, bro. You just made that, you just made that journey longer. Here's the idea. In your situation, you're trying to determine what God wants for you. Here's your first step. What pleases God? I'm going to end with this. Three things to do if you don't know what to do. Number one, pray. Pray. God, I don't know what to do. Pray. Number two, listen. Listen. God wants to speak to you. You are in a relationship with God. It's not just that God redeemed you out from under the penalty of sin and you will experience eternal life. You're in a relationship with God. God will speak to you. And then number three, this is your favorite verb. Do what? What is it? That's your favorite verb, right? You, you love that verb. When you get, to the, you, you get to the line, you're about to order food, and they say, oh, 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 just wait, the, something wrong with the cash register. You're like, oh, stoked. I was hoping I'd be the guy that the cash register broke just before I, you know, I got this. Or, or hey, the, they're, they're testing the, the railroad crossing. So just wait. Just wait. You know, it won't be long. Just wait. You love that, right? Those of you that were stuck in that, one of our staff members walked. I don't know where he left his car. He, maybe it's still there. He's walked. I'm done with this, right? We don't like to wait. But, but here's the reality. When we don't know what God wants us to do, we need to pray, we need to listen, and we need to wait because God will speak to us. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Jim Gallagher. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor Jim's ministry by visiting www.ccvb.net.